This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. In the last episode I was talking about American anthropologists in Afghanistan who had been there along with the military to talk to the local people and uh, enlist support for America's military interventions there. It was called the human terrain theory. I was wondering what such interventions really meant for anthropology as a discipline and its prospects. Afghanistan of course happens to occupy the attention of the entire planet at the moment with regard to what will happen in the immediate future but the immediate future of the planet is not the only major concern of global thought leaders indeed the future of the planet in the medium term and in the long term is a far more pressing concerns of specialists across a range of disciplines i'm talking really about climate change economists statisticians geologists and scientists of a range of other disciplines have been worrying about the prospects of climate change and its consequences for the very survival of this planet in medium and long term history and historians in first sight would appear to be somewhat distant to these concerns not quite historian dipesh chakraborty of the chicago university has recently published two very important books on the questions of climate change and its implications for history as a discipline professor chakraborty who is the lawrence a kimpton distinguished service professor of history south asian languages and civilizations also hold a um, affiliated faculty position in department of english law school uh, university of chicago center in delhi and chicago center for contemporary theory and cinema and media studies as well as comparative literature centers is our guest today professor chakraborty really needs no introduction to students and connoisseurs of history as a discipline most recently professor chakraborty has published um, two books on the concerns of climate change his more recent book is the climate of history in a planetary age from the university of chicago the indian edition has recently been published in this wide ranging and frank conversation which follows um, which i had with professor chakraborty in july he reflects in great detail and with great insight on his career the various paths that uh, history really took 
with regard to the life and career of a distinguished practitioner of the discipline. Here's my conversation with Professor Dipesh Chakraborty. Let's hear. Professor Chakraborty, welcome to History Chatter. My first question is about the way you define the public lives of history in that famous essay in 2008 or so. Um, and this has a particular reference to the way history has been consumed or debated outside the academia in India. Uh, will you please elaborate on uh, your idea of the public lives of history and why it is important at the moment in India more than ever? Uh, thank you, Anirban, for having me on your, um, on your show. Happy to be here. The idea of public life of history came from my experience of certain forms of uh, historicizing, certain forms of historical remembering that were becoming popular, not just in India, globally, I, as I could see it, where people were claiming certain kinds of heritages uh, that they sometimes had been denied in public life. And so the, so the claim was being made in public life and the heritage was being denied in public life or these were contested forms of heritage. So for instance, um, when I, when I was in Australia up until 1995 from 1977, 20, almost 20 years and uh, in my time in the 1980s, the indigenous peoples developed forms of claiming history, claiming the past in public life. It could be certain forms of dancing, it could be certain other ways of claiming heritage, claiming that the past was alive for them. Similarly, in India at the same time with the rise of Bahujan Samaj party in politics, uh, there were particular ways of claiming the past that the Dalit communities were producing in North India as Badri Narayan was showing. For instance, um, giving credit to Jalkari Bai rather than the Rani of Jhansi for the Battle of the Mutiny or uh, creating monuments and even uh, monuments to and, and statues of uh, this King Suhil Dev. Uh, that, uh, you know, so they, those were, so what, what was happening was that as people were becoming, asserting themselves in public life, one form of that assertion was to claim history as part of their public persona, as part of their public identity. And, uh, and these were forms of historicizing which were tied to questions of identity, tied to questions of positively valuing that identity, finding something to be proud of in that identity. So, so on the one hand, there were commercialized reproductions of history, historical enactments, like say the light and show sound in Lal Killa or in other forts in uh, India or even at the Victory Memorial, you know, sometimes you have light and, light and show sounds in in um, many of the Western countries, you have actually historically reenacted sites, you know, tourism spots where people uh, dress up in the costumes of the past and act like they're people from the past. So there were many different ways in which, then you think of television history, which we have also now have. Histories on television, histories on screen. So I was trying, to, and these were both, these are all forms of remembering the past that over time have become very important 
in 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 many different contexts so there were, so there were two aspects of it was one was that there were multiple forms of celebrating the past that were uh, taking place throughout the world among commun- mainly to do with communities whose histories had been suppressed or silenced or who have not had adequate representation in textbooks or in, in academic histories right uh, and who were inventing these many possible ways of remembering their past uh, through sculpture through performance through music and um, so i was referring to these as the public lives of history because often uh, they were challenging what academic textbooks said and often there were debates between what they would claim um uh, about the past and what academic historians might claim about the past i mean you can even look at the debate over the babri masjid and the ram janmabhoomi disputation as a as an instance of this public life of history right where um uh, not only was a court case going on involving archaeologists and judges but there was also the active vandalizing of the mosque you know both itself a history making event as well as a history claiming event right and uh, and these public forms of history are necessarily in tension with academic forms of writing because they don't always use the same rules of evidence that academic historians would want to use but at the same time in many places where academic historians are not strongly organized or not very large in number uh they have to engage these these other forms of histori- historicizing into some kind of conversation they have to uh, uh so therefore these developments also have had an impact eventually on the academic life of history which i was calling the cloistered life of history so i was kind of using these distinction between the cloistered life of a discipline in this case history and its public life and you know history is a kind of discipline which um has very few barriers to entry i mean anybody who can read and write can go into an archive and start writing history uh we call them sometimes amateur historians we call them uh non academic but people who write popular histories and uh, and that's the advantage of the discipline or or its disadvantage i mean if you were if you couldn't do that in physics you couldn't do that even with economics because you'd have to learn some maths you'd have to learn some special tricks Whereas most history, not archaeology, not uh, very quantitative history, but most histories are written in prose. So, so that uh, it's very hard to maintain a kind of uh, very strong barrier between the what happens in public life and what happens in, in academic life. So, what what you get is a yeah, debates in academic life which reflect the conversation and the tension between these different forms of history. Uh, so. and i think india is a place where the public forms of history are far more powerful than uh, or have much more powerful influences on public life than unfortunately from the point of view of academics <laughs> right in fact that uh, allows me um, a kind of follow up question on the other side other part of uh, the paper where you make a basic distinction um between histories of how uh, universities in india and universities elsewhere have uh, 
mediated uh, in public life, the patterns uh, of this mediation has been have been rather different. In India, you show, in fact, that the two institutions which have had the maximum effect in um, regulating public life or influencing public life towards a certain direction are the court on the one hand and the process of election. Whereas um, in Australia, um, it has been the universities where historians have looked into uh, histories and ways of remembering and indeed uh, negotiating, accommodating, learning to live with various other kinds of memories of marginalized groups. And quite deservedly, universities have been at the forefront of uh, public debates about identity. That uh, sort of also brings me to this uh, uh, autobiographical article that you wrote in The Crisis of Civilization, introducing your uh, sort of framing your intellectual project, where you wrote that you were not allowed, even after publishing a few papers in journals, to write a PhD in history in Indian universities, because your early degrees were in management and in physics. And you spoke about your early interest in literature and philosophy. I'd like for you to go back to that decisive moment, because you also write about the very forswishes um, chance, really, nature of your becoming a historian through certain accidents and a specific um, irony you wrote of uh, the history of development in India, where a yeah. business school was made to include uh, a compulsory course in history. Yeah, so when, when the two IMs were set up, Ahmedabad and, and Calcutta, when they were set up in 62, they were quite distinctive institutions in the whole world of business schools. Because while, you know, Harvard had a subject called business history, these were two business schools where history was made compulsory subject in the first year. Students had to read history. And there was a man called Brijendra Tripathi, who was a professor at IIM Ahmedabad, who wrote a lot of business history, and other people joined him later. And... Uh, and the man who taught us this compulsory course was Borunde, who was a Marxist historian. The story of a business school appointing a Marxist historian is itself connected to the story of Marxist historians in West Bengal. I think professors, they would have loved to teach in Kolkata University. But professors in Kolkata University did not want a Marxist teaching there. So he always thought of himself as a displaced Marxist teaching in a business school. But the interesting thing was that my business school professors were very happy with what he taught. Uh, and there was a contradiction that the course he taught, the compulsory course was called Historical Roots of Economic Backwardness, which was a title I think, I think he took from uh, the writings of Alexander Gershenkron, a historian of Russia at Harvard, Professor, they used that title, but basically the course was an indictment of colonialism and how colonialism underdeveloped India. So that sort of thing that Vipan Chandra and others would have been teaching at JNU at the same that time. We learned in JNU, yes, Capcom, That you learned yeah. in JNU, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, while we, we would be taught economics, also by a Marxist economist, but he didn't teach us Marxist economics, Porish Chattopadhyay, who was a Marx scholar, actually. 
But he basically taught us Paul Samuelson, who was a neoclassical uh, economist, Nobel laureate, but who was anti-Marxist. So, so I, we were kind of given this contradictory, uh, we were put in this contradictory position where our view of the past was anti-capitalist and our view of the future was pro-capitalist. And I say that that's kind of, that went nicely with Nehru's vision of a socialistic pattern of society, you know, like that uh, you had to be critical of the role of colonialism in uh, that uh, in Indian economic development, but you looked forward to a kind of economically developed India. So it was the accident of meeting Professor Day and coming across the subject of history in this kind of Marxist form in the business school that. Uh, uh, that got me interested, and and really it was Professor Day who inducted me into historical research. But uh, Kolkata University would not let me do a PhD because I did not have a BA or an MA in history. So eventually, actually, I did. <clears throat> so they required me to actually pass BA again, and I did pass Part One as a private student. And then I realized that it would take me fifteen years to finish my PhD at that rate. Because then I'd have to do an MA and then I had to do a PhD. So it would just seem absurd. So fortunately, I had uh, <clears throat> the opportunity to go to Australia to do my PhD. So uh, that's what I did. It, it sort of resonates with me. I uh, passed my undergraduate in uh, presidency college and worked for six years and wanted to come back to doing history again. Uh, when I wrote... Um, uh, a similar test and failed. Um, incidentally, I quoted some of your work in that test. It resonates very strongly. I had already read a bit of it while as an undergraduate student. And um, something um, comes full circle. I had not anticipated this kind of uh, company. So um, moving on, I thought um, I would ask you a little about uh, the basic transition to being a historian that happens uh, by chance once again when you're asked to to appear for a job interview or uh, study history for higher education which professor day himself asks and you choose of course to study history and then um, get out of calcutta india in 76 and you've lived abroad since though you've kept in touch with india and kolkata on a regular basis uh, Australia changes your intellectual interests and builds a certain distance, something that you called in many senses a displacement um, of sorts and a replacement too, perhaps, in other ways, where um, you engage afresh with the idea of Marxism and working class history uh, that differs significantly from your uh, colleagues and cohorts in Kolkata and India. Uh, which leads eventually to uh, the the book Rethinking Walking Class History, where um, you very broadly wonder about why a certain anticipated revolution did not take place um, and ascribed it to certain uh, categories of history walked out elsewhere, as in Europe, uh, loosely speaking, which did not quite uh, easily translate or um, accommodate uh, realities in India. People in India who could be called uh, laborers uh, thought of class 
in very different senses. And their thought about class were mediated, influenced, inflected with ideas about culture, hierarchy, caste, local affinities. And that sort of really is the core argument, very broadly speaking, of the first book. How does that shift come about in your work? Well, one is a shift at a personal level. See, what happens is when you go to another country as a grown-up person. I mean, I was 27 when I left India. And totally formed by my experience of growing up in India, Kolkata. I was a Calcutta boy. And you go to another country and you see that the same word is actually enacted in a different way. So, my one of the one great in, sort of um, experience of such realization was when I watched the first election, National Election Day in Australia. So, if you think of a National Election Day in India, it's festive. You have all these banners and posters out, festoons, and um, it's also a holiday. You know, uh, local clubs in Calcutta would have their carom boards out on a stool and people would be playing carom while others lined up in different schools to vote. Plus, you see posses of policemen posted in different places. Some places you do have a few bombs going off. Uh, You know, and we used to have jokes in Calcutta about a constituency where both of the candidates on opposite sides were basically gundas and and their, their men had exploded so many bombs that there were only two votes cast. At the end of the day, just the two gundas came and went and came, cast their votes. So it's a joke. But but it was a kind of festive day. It was pregnant with the possibility of violence. But it was all, it was also kind of a carnival. There's something carnivalesque about the uh, election day. Whereas the Australian election day was hardly noticeable. I mean, a school would be the polling booth. But you wouldn't see a long line. You wouldn't see any policeman anywhere. You would see people trickling in through the day. And you wouldn't, I mean, if I had just come from India, I wouldn't have thought, huh, there's a national election going on. So, you know, so in similar ways, you, you come across an event which has a name that is familiar, called election, for instance, right? But it doesn't look familiar. So you, you first of all realize that the same concept is visualized and enacted differently. For instance, in Australia, even today, the Prime Minister appears on television almost on a weekly or a monthly basis and is subject to very tough questioning. Sometimes the Prime Minister and the journalists have equal rights to get angry. It's not like only the Prime Minister has the right to live in a half or the Chief Minister. Even the journalist might have the right to live in a half. Now, then you realize that <laughs> that, that Yes, we are both democracies, but our, our ideas of status, who is of a higher status, are very different and how we practice them. Right? So we have the same name, Prime Minister. We have the same name as journalist. We have the same event called an interview. But a Prime Minister or Chief Minister holds in India such a high and sensitive view of their place in the world that they can terminate an interview leave in a half, but, and their votes would go up. Whereas if you did it in Australia, you would look like you had failed to answer the question and your votes would go down. And, you know, when you look at these differences, you realize that simply because 
we are called the largest democracy of the world and we are the word democracy the largest may mean the same thing that we have more people and indisputable but the word democracy does not mean the same thing so when you experience moving from one democracy to another when you experience that the same words used for naming events actually describe very events of very different kinds you develop a sense of distance from your own experience before because when you when i was when i'd only had the indian experience i used to think that this is what democracy is right you you grow up forming a natural association between the way the word democracy is enacted and the concept of democracy and then you realize that a concept has a conceptual abstract side which remains the same but it also has a visualized figurative side how it is figured and that remains different and that's where different histories play a role different pasts play a role so the kind of tolerance we have in kolkata for instance for a riot would not be prevalent in a place like australia it's not like they don't have riots but the the sense of outrage is much stronger because it doesn't happen as frequently for a public disturbance it doesn't happen as frequently when it happens people are genuinely more shocked so what happens is it kind of so when you move from one country to another and then coming from australia to america again democracy has seemed different compared to australian democracy here the president does not come on television every day but he does much more frequently than the prime minister of india so you realize that same word same concepts john stuart mill is being read in universities in all three places but still different practices and those different practices have to do with different histories different pasts so there's a sense of relativism that comes into your mind you realize that even these concepts are enacted in times and you know their enactment is dependent on the difference between different times and different places and that sense of relativism gives you a sense of distance from your own previous experience which had actually naturalized the phenomenon if i had only grown up in india then i would have thought yes of course mamta banerjee is leaving a an interview halfway or narendra modi is leaving an interview halfway because they were displeased about a question they'd been asked is exactly how prime ministers and chief minister should behave because they are exalted people whereas an australian would think this is exactly how they should not behave because they're one of us so when you move between these two experiences then what happens is neither remains absolute so i can tell say to my australian friends look it's different in india and i can say to my indian friends look it's different in australia but that conversation was taking place within myself right uh because a person who has only known india may not be as receptive to the australian example as i am because they have not experienced that so in a uh in a funny way that as you move from one country to another and you're exposed to different histories there is a kind of historical relativism that comes into your view of the past and um, of at least recent pasts and that also is what creates a a sense of both a distance from your own previous past but your sense of closeness remains so that's why i'd say that i remain an insider and an outsider 
at the same time to each of these cultures by the way you 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 do write that uh, in fact uh, i'd be remiss if i did not mention at the stage that uh, somewhere in the middle of writing your uh, phd and uh, publishing the book you became one of the founding editors of the subaltern studies project and that indeed is another long uh, history will you uh, mind sharing with us a few salient details of how the project came about and how you became part of it because uh, later on the other next phase of your career and uh, growth as a historian and historian of ideas has to do with uh, a certain uh, expansion or uh, movement uh, of the subaltern studies and right. thinking associated with it <clears throat> yeah so you know part of the history of subaltern studies of course goes back to before i was a part of the project and before the project itself was there so there's a prehistory of the project and the prehistory of the project has to do with ranajit guha coming to delhi in 1970 to on his sabbatical to write a book on gandhi this is how he told us the story when he came across the likes of shahid amin and gyan pande the saint stevens naxalites and uh, <laughs> and and kind of came to love them and have affection deep affection for them and they for him too respect and affection and that conversation made him decide that he would not write the book on gandhi because gandhi was all about non violence that he would write a book about violence and peasant insurgency so he changed his mind he says he says he returned uh, his publisher's advance so if i remember right and uh, got interested in peasant insurgency and then he went back to sussex and of course shahid and gyan went to oxford to do their phd's with papan rajachandri but they kept in touch with ranjit da and uh, i think there would be weekend meetings in sussex in ranjit da's place of <coughs> shahid and gyan who were working with tapanda and david arund and david hardiman who were actually working with my old supervisor anthony lo dlo so these four people who actually worked with two other historians as the respective supervisors but were also sitting at the feet of ranajit guha and imbibing his thoughts on potentially subaltern history so it's out of their meetings and conversations that the idea of subaltern studies and ranjit the wrote up uh, what we used to jokingly call the manifesto and that was published in the first volume of subaltern studies about what his very short tract on what subaltern studies was all about then i went to england to do my research from australia and anthony low who had supervised arnold and and david hardiman and anthony already had made arrangements for ranajit guha to come to canberra for five, for five years and he told me go and go and look up ranajit guha so i called him and he said oh yes i know about know about you and i'm very interested in your work come to my place so i went to ranjit this place for a weekend it was not the first time i'd met him but it was but he didn't remember our first meeting which was in 1970 in kolkata actually at the place of um, your supervisor uh, tanika's place <laughs> okay. uh, her parents right. place actually uh, he had come to because he he used to be good friends with tanika's father and he had come to see tanika's mother uh, shukmani mashwar 
And that's where I met him first, but he didn't remember me, but I remember him. Anyway, so I spent a weekend there, discussed his chapters. He read me out the short uh, piece on subaltern studies, what they meant to do, and I found it fascinating. So he kind of signed me up at the end of the weekend to, into the group. And then we talked about Gautam Bhadra and Partha Chatterjee. He was interested in them. And he was on his way back to, well, on his way to Australia, he was going to stop in Kolkata. And I came back before he came to Kolkata from London and spoke enthusiastically to Partha and Gautam. So when he came, he, he signed them up too. So that's how I think the first kind of collective was formed. And... Uh, and then they published the first volume. I don't, I don't think I had a piece in the first volume. I think I published them in the second volume. I mean, I've written about it in other places. Yes. But basically, Ranujitha's book on elementary aspects itself was quite a revolutionary book. It was revolutionary in its methods. It was very imaginative. It was drawing on intellectual sources that we were not very familiar with, like structuralism. So it was very exciting to meet Ranajit Guha because A, he was an unusual kind of historian and B, he had a tremendous enthusiasm for ideas and uh, and for looking afresh at, at something. So um, he could communicate to you a kind of a palpable sort of love of ideas. And he was very inspiring. And then I think... Uh, Shumit Sharkar joined for a few years and then left disgruntled. And uh, so there was a point when Tonika wrote for subaltern studies, Shumit wrote for subaltern studies. And then there was also a split, split in the sense that Shumit Sharkar left. And uh, and subaltern studies, uh, in a few years, Gayatri Spivak kind of came and joined us. And that resulted in certain developments which some people within subaltern studies did not like intellectually. Like David Hardiman was very critical of what he saw as a deconstructive turn or whatever. Uh, so but it was, very, but you know, altogether when looking back, it was intellectually tumultuous. It was a phase in which um, ideas mattered and they mattered so much that they, did, they could break up a group, you could fight with friends. But, but, they were, but they were very engaging ideas in that sense. They didn't always bring people together. They sometimes divided people. But people could be divided over ideas. So I would say that I met Ranajita in 79. And from then on, uh, I was part of subaltern studies. That, that, that point about ideas uh, being so powerful, um, in some way governing relations, animating people, uh, ruling their uh, impulse, really, uh, the drive of making up and indeed relating to the world at large and to people in it is is uh, very uh, visible in the next phase, if I may call it that, of your work, where you engage more fully with what is broadly known as the post-colonial uh, turn, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, which uh, sort of work uh, animate the next two books, Habitations of Modernity and the <laughs> provincializing Europe. Uh, but but uh, will you, for the lay reader, uh, talk about what you called Europe and in what sense, uh, in what distinctive sense you talk about provincializing it um, in the sense that you put a time and space to a certain idea of what appeared ideal to uh, 
many in India and South Asia. Borun Babu got me working on labor history. So I continued with labor history. And E.P. Thompson's work was very influential globally. And we all had this idea, even in subaltern studies, that somehow the expected, desired socialist revolution had not happened in India. All across the left, there was that feeling that maybe some people would have said that, okay, the, the bourgeoisie had won or some people with the capitalists had won. But it was clear that at independence, India was not. India had politicians who were uh, not hostile to socialism. And Nehru was by no means hostile. But even he used the word socialistic pattern of society. He did not say socialist society. Because the distinction was important for him. And of course, Gandhi in that sense was not a traditional lefty socialist. So there was a there was a feeling that Indian history had not quite turned out uh, in the expected way. Now, where did the expected way come from? Why did we have such expectations? Then you realize that even if you go back and read, forget Marxist, you go back and read Ranade. Uh, Bandarkar, you actually talk about in <laughs> yeah. Well, the Maratha, you know, the, the 1901 book on the Maratha Bhakti movement. And you can see that Ranade saw Bhakti movement as a sort of Protestantism. So right from the 19th century for educated Indians, certain narrative of European history was becoming a template through which to view our history. And of course, for the Marxists, it was even stronger because the template was stronger, that there should be feudalism, capitalism, whatever, you know, kind of uh, stages of history, the template was stronger. And once we began to question the very, the very expectation that India must develop the way Europe had, then from that followed the question about, so why did European categories seem so attractive? Why did the European self-narrativization of their own history by say, people like Marx or Max Weber or whoever seem so attractive to us? Why did we want to transition in the same way? And that, from that you can see that it's because we were interested in the same uh, notions of freedom, of modernity, of modernization. You know, the basic idea that human beings should be free from oppression by other human beings. And that human beings should be masters of nature free from the thraldom of nature, right? Those were two basic European themes that were integral to Indian notions of modernity, modernization. And so, the, so the, then the larger question for me became, how do ideas that arise in one place among intellectuals who have no experience of other places appeal to people in other places who have no experience of the countries in which the ideas arose? So, you know, how do ideas transcend the particular experience from which they come? And what are the ways in which they fail to transcend particular histories in which they originate? That was the project of problem of provincializing Europe. So try to understand how a province, a part of the world, can look universal for others, of universal relevance or validity, right? So, so that was... Um, but, you know, the other thing, something that, doesn't I don't have an opportunity to talk about and see all these you cannot separate a person's work from their lives. So the fact was that after I finished my PhD and I was teaching in Melbourne and I was at a particular age where my parents were getting old. So every time I had a holiday like the normal leave 
when people would do research i would come and look after them and you know carry out the house house repairs they needed to have made done i would see my friends but i would not be able to go to go to do archival research and in australia also indian studies were in decline so i was talking to people more in cultural studies in social theory in other things so the theoretical questions conceptual questions were easier to work with so in some ways while the very basic questions of provincializing europe came out of the experience of working on labor history archival work but provincializing europe was something i had to write when i didn't have much, my life didn't allow me too many opportunities to go to the archives so i had to write about practices like adda i had to go to other sites that i could basically write by going to libraries and you know some indian friends criticized me for my laziness that i was not going to archives <laughs> yes, that i'd given up on archives <laughs> but they they were young and they didn't realize that your life and your work are connected i mean later on when i had that's, time and my parents were dead i could work on jandunath sarkar and go to the archives that's quite true that that sort of uh, brings me to a question which may be a little added to your last observation i thought i'd call this uh, session from uh, disputation to conversations um drawing from a distinction uh, that i thought you make consciously or unconsciously between your early method in india or the method of your cohorts in india um to what you do now in terms of your approach to um interlocutors um while earlier it was a conscious choice to try and uh, overwhelm or defeat the interlocutors in argument and overwrite really uh, their point with yours as to you emerge a winner what you do now is an attempt to strike up conversations with other voices um, not necessarily leading to a conclusion that resolves the debate but opens up new uh, ways of inquiries which suits yeah, uh, most of us at the stage which we now take for granted but uh, at that time it was not that common well just because that partly because of the brahminical heritage partly because of public school heritage so actually most people who go to st stephen's college were used to my generation mine ended too. up being debaters <laughs> and if they and if they became historians their point in a debate was to defeat the opposition you know so uh, what i call a shatriya mode of argumentation you sort of, <laughs> you, you have to go and conquer areas and uh, whereas i find it much more enriching because you know who who has the right version of the world nobody does we all have feet of clay it's much more enriching to learn from somebody who disagrees with you without necessarily having to completely agree with them uh and uh, otherwise what happens you know like when i wrote provincializing europe some of these sensitivens friends ex sensitivens friends even wrote things like that this were not you know like i had written the book to advance my career <laughs> you know i mean when i i once wrote something in a newspaper in like in newspaper english in plain english not in academic prose and a friend in delhi wrote to me saying dipesh you can write this prose now that you are a full professor why do you continue writing academic prose now and and i said what makes you assume that it was always instrumental <laughs> but there was also other thing that 
that Indian critics don't think about, particularly young people. See, young people read a book and they write a review of it, strong or weak, good or bad, without thinking that the author actually has a life. <laughs> and that life has constraints as well as possibilities. And I was fortunate in that when, in that when it, entered a phase when i entered a phase of life when i did not have time to go to archives i was fortunate that i was always interested in conceptual questions so i could make use of that time to push my other interests uh, because i had always i had always had interest in theoretical questions in conceptual from my school days but otherwise i would have been a frustrated historian because i simply would not have had the time to go to archives when my parents were getting old and honestly until they died that became the first, I was the only son, so that became my first priority. But what I'm saying is that when people make cruel remarks, and particularly young people do, about books, they don't, they don't realize that people who write books have lives. And you can't separate <laughs> their lives from their work. Uh, I mean, people don't realize that you know, Marx wrote the last 10 years of his life, standing up because he had shingles. Right? He wrote with a lot of pain in his body. Now, he doesn't write about the pain, but when you imagine somebody suffering in pain and writing, then you realize that whether you can identify it or not, that physical pain and discomfiture must have passed itself on to his writing. At this stage, uh, since we're running out of time, uh, follow up on this last observation of yours, uh, which is essentially about the limits of human agency, of indeed the whole question of agency, which has occupied your interest throughout uh, these various shifts in your uh, professional interests, um, which brings me to uh, the recent book on planetary history, really the proposition of Anthropocene and the possibility of thinking in terms of a historical time, which is much larger and deals with uh, concepts such as technosphere, where you indeed enter into a, a conversation with geologists, with scientists, um, with um, deep history, advocates of deep history of uh, time and uh, agency, where you actually move to roughly the proposition that um, agency is not necessarily a function of consciousness, as in we consciously do things and make history happen, um, as used to be the older basic postulate of human history. Um, will you please very broadly skate some of the major terms and scope of what you call planetary history as opposed to global history, which is where we'll also eventually conclude, if only for lack of time, given to myself, I'd love to carry this forward for uh, as yeah, long as you can. Uh, yeah, the problem is time because, you know, there are comp complicated yeah. questions. You're right that when we write history, or what we call recorded history, we basically take the world, the physical world for granted and the biological world for granted. So you can write about, let's say, competition in the seas about fishing salmon between Pacific nations and Japan, or about the whale, killing whales, right? Now, 
what we do there is, uh, I mean, at the most, you might know that there's a problem that the whales are going extinct and we should, pre- you might have some environmental awareness, but you don't really think about the seas. You don't think about what the temperature of the seas are and what the chemical composition of the, of seawater is, how it might vary from one place to another, whether the waters are dead or light. We don't think about those things. Those are, those are oceanographers know about them. What I propose, given the climate crisis and everything in my book, is that people who do the history of the planet, geological history, people who do the evolutionary history of life, are also historians of different kinds. Their methods are different. Their arguments are different. Their evidentiary rules are different and from our rules, but we are also historians. And these histories, these different histories can be in conversation with each other. And, and I also argue that that conversation has become very important because without that conversation, you don't understand what the climate change, the crisis of climate change is all about. Because the crisis of climate change tells you that the planet, the earth is not an inert body to which we can we just do anything. So if we pursue a path of development which ends up producing more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, then there are certain responses, you might call them planetary, to that fact that follow. For instance, the seas will warm up and will expand and come up, come up and gobble up some of your coastal cities. The seas will become very acidic. If the seas become acidic, then little creatures that form shells, kori or kauri, right? They won't be formed. They, they won't be able to form their cell, shells because the shells are made of calcium, and calcium in, in acidic water will dissolve calcium. So they will die. If they die, there is a impact going up the food chain because they are basic food for other creatures. Or if the seas warm up too much, then small creatures called phytoplanktons will die. If phytoplanktons die, then the atmosphere will be deprived of a major source of oxygen, which we need for our existence. So what the expansion of capitalism, expansion of modernization, expansion of our lifestyle has shown to us through this crisis that we cannot take the earth for granted. We have to be aware of how the earth works, how life, why life, life subsists on this planet. And what our place is, what the place of our small lives is in the larger story of life and of the planet. And there I suggest that instead of having, treating the sciences only with suspicion that sometimes science studies promotes, we should actually treat scientists as fellow historians and learn some to read the language in which they write their histories. And they also need to uh, read our kind of histories, otherwise they don't understand what capitalism is what neoliberalism is, what changes Reagan and Maggie Thatcher have brought to the history of capitalism, what China's rise means, what aspiration is, the the aspirations of Indians, which collectively that aspiration that has put Modi in charge, right, expecting a huge uh, rise of India to a big power status, that their sciences don't teach them. So they also have to have things to learn from us while we have things to learn from them. So in, in a way, my book is an, an, a, in some ways an argument for this conversation and in some ways a demonstration as a humanist historian how the conversation can benefit our humanist enterprises. 
Thank you so much, uh, Professor Chakraborty. If there's a spirit that runs through all of your work, it could be summed up, but you used um, as a phrase in a slightly older article, invitation to a dialogue. And I <laughs> simply replace it with uh, invitation to more conversations uh, right. with me, with the audience, with the student body, and with the rest of uh, readership. I would be remiss if I did not tell at this point that for someone who um, has written all these years and spoken about extremely dense conceptual questions in history and in social sciences as a whole, his writing is exceedingly lucid. Um, it may appear so lucid to me because I've had a prior training in history, but at least any reader with some amount of uh, investment of time can make sense of the broad um, scope and direction of his arguments and uh, postulates, uh, which is the reason um, I would request uh, the listeners to pick up uh, his latest and indeed uh, a number of articles, the public life lives of history being one that I recommend very strongly, especially because it will resonate with their contemporary interests in the role of history in public life as such. Uh, thank you once again, uh, Professor Chakraborty, for, uh, for your time and for your uh, very wise uh, insights and words and encouragement indeed uh, to me and to this uh, initiative uh, of trying to reach out to a public over and above uh, the cloistered academia as it were thank you now that brings to the end of this episode of history chatter do tell us what you think about this episode and please let us know what topics themes or concerns you'd like for me to cover in future episodes till then this is your friend onirban signing off do subscribe to History Chatter in Epilogue Media website and wherever you get your podcast from. See you soon.